You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Showreel uh, 3CR's look at the Australian film industry. There's lots of things that are going on. Last week we talked to the uh, CEO and uh, uh, organiser of the Australian International documentary conference which is going to start on uh, March the 1st and go to the uh, middle of next week and uh, they've got a couple of uh, important uh, uh, there's a whole lot of things going on there so if you want to have more information about or buy tickets to the AIDC then uh, go online but uh, 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 we have a couple of uh, Alice from uh, the IDC has given us a couple of double passes uh, for two important events uh, and uh, director uh, Q&As. One is Our Time Machine, which is by S. Leo Chian, and it's a moving exploration of creative family and memory, and the film follows the celebrated Chinese artist, Melion, and his attempt to stage an ambitious work of autobiographical puppet theatre and it's inspired by his uh, uh, father's uh, approaching um, uh, loss of uh, memory uh, because of dementia and so he does this whole uh, puppet recreation of uh, important past events and it's on 6pm Sunday the 1st of March at the Capitol Fabulous Theatre 6pm Sunday 1st of March that's a double pass if you want to give us a call and give us your name so we can put your name on the door and the other one is The Cave which is uh, uh, in contention for the best documentary Oscar at the 2020 Academy Awards follows a female-led medical team risking their lives to provide medical care to the besieged local population in Ghouta in Syria. Uh, and uh, the uh, director, uh, Feras Fayyad, is going to be in attendance uh, for a Q&A. And that's at 6.30pm on Monday, 2pm at the Capitol. Uh, sorry, 6.30pm Monday the 2nd of March at the Capitol. And if you're interested in these uh, double passes, there's one double pass to each of those events, you can give us a call on 94198377. 
That's 94198377. Now, to the business of today, the Invisible Man. Now, the Invisible Man has uh, is starting off tonight. It's uh, um, been directed by Lee Winnell. It's written and directed by Lee Winnell. He's a Melbourne boy and, uh, of course, rose to meteoric fame when with uh, his collaboration with the director James Wan they uh, made the Saw series which uh, uh, was uh, well received internationally a horror uh, franchise now uh, but uh, he you might remember a couple of years ago he made a, himself he's he's directed three films himself uh, and uh, one of them was a, a really tight film called Upgrade and if you haven't seen Upgrade it's really good it's a really good film and the new film the invisible man which is a sort of a riff on hg wells's famous invisible man concept is a, a very interesting twist on um uh, domestic violence really it stars elizabeth moss uh of uh Everyone knows Elizabeth Moss now because of The Handmaid's Tale, but uh, also uh, other uh, pretty fabulous uh, performances. And funnily enough, the other day she was uh, a lead in uh, Medium, that uh, uh, series that uh, keeps repeating itself over and over. So she obviously uh, an Antipodean actress who's done very well for herself. But anyway, she's the lead in this uh, uh the Invisible Man. It's a very tight film. Uh, it's quite a, 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 a really worth seeing, and it starts tonight. But uh, this is uh, taken from a uh, a screening uh, a while ago, and uh, Lee Winnell was there, and he was being asked questions by uh, an MC as well as by people in the audience. The quality isn't fantastic because uh, actually they're. Um, Mike's skills weren't that good because they were making lots of racket. But uh, what they're saying is uh, quite fascinating, I thought. I thought you might be interested. H.G. Wells' original novel from 1897 is beloved by a lot of people and has been adapted a lot over the past 100 plus years. I'm really curious about how you got the idea to flip the script and make The Invisible Man about a woman. Well, I guess... um... Uh, the The Invisible Man wasn't a film that I was burning to make. I, I of course, know about The Invisible Man, but it was uh, not something I was thinking of. It was suggested to me by Blumhouse and Universal, like, what do you think about this character? And um, so they incepted me with this idea, and, um, and I started thinking about it, and one of the first thoughts I had was just that the... Invisible Man is more scary when he's not the central character. When, you know, the original film and novel concentrate on him as a character and his descent into madness. For me, it was much more scary, the idea of the Invisible Man coming after you. That just seemed natural to me. There have been a lot of instances where the character of the Invisible Man has been played as a joke. And I'm thinking of, like... Obviously, Hollow Man, let's not go there, but... Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yes, Chevy John Carpenter, Chase. let's shout out. But Mad Monster Party as well, which I know you're a fan of. Classic. Uh, why did you want to do a serious take? Like, I think after you've seen the film, it seems really obvious, but before that, did you think it was even possible to do a serious take? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did. I saw 
the way in which I would have to do it to make it serious. It's all about how you approach the material. So I wanted to really modernise this character and make it as if the novel The Invisible Man was written last year. I didn't want to treat it like this old property and, and have too much allegiance to the gothic lineage of this character I wanted to just treat it like it was a totally new thing, no one's even aware of this character. So you kind of have to Jedi mind trick yourself into thinking that no one's ever done it before to get through the screenwriting process, you know? Yeah, I don't think, like, compared to a lot of the other characters in that stable, I don't know if you're going to be getting a lot of angry tweets from Invisible Man OGs out there, you know? <laughs> right, I mean, he is kind of one of the underdogs, you know, in that sort of stable of monsters that we all know. Like, they're all on your pants. Um, you know, shout out to pants. are good, aren't they? Um, um, you know, Dracula and... Frankenstein's monster, they're like the rock stars of the group. That's the sort of Batman and Superman. And then you've got like tier two. It's kind of this ranked process. And I felt like the Invisible Man was kind of, um, he doesn't have the cultural footprint that Dracula has. So I felt a lot of freedom to just um, mess around with the character and take it down the path. I wanted to take it in. In a way that you couldn't, you know, if you mess around with something like Star Wars. Some people online get angry. I've heard that rumour. Um, speaking of those rock star characters, uh, obviously the, the Universal Movie Monsters are Hollywood's oldest cinematic shared universe. And there have been attempts to reboot that in recent decades, but did you feel an added weight of expectation and added pressure when taking on a movie that's part of that legacy? Not really, because, you know, if, if they had made three of those monster movies already and they had all been wildly successful and there were a lot of fans, then I would feel a lot of pressure. Like, if you're coming into something that's already successful, there would be a lot of fear for me of, like, am I going to... You know, it's like a relay race. Like, you don't want to be the one that, that messes it up for the rest of the team. They're like, we all did our jobs. Where that was me. I was that person. Yeah, exactly. I yeah, dropped um, the baton, metaphorically. Yeah, dropped the baton. And, um, and so, but because that wasn't the case in this one, like, there, there wasn't a recent spate of these movies. So I felt kind of, um, you know, unburdened by any sort of um, recent um, work, you know. Now we have an uh, opportunity for you guys to ask Lee questions. Questions, not statements. If you have a statement, I'm super excited for you, but please don't ask it. Uh, so if I'm you were to... <laughs> to hear statements. Just in general. Cool. So please raise your hand and a mic will float over to you. We've got one just here. Yeah. Yes, uh, you definitely took that one out of the box. <laughs> I was very, very amazed by the fact that, you know, apart from being a very good film and keeping us on the edge of our seats and everything, I think I'm not alone in that one. The music score, the soundtrack was astounding. That was a large part of the tension in this film. A very large part. Could you tell us a little bit about your direct involvement? Did you uh, really hands-on with the music? Were you hands-on with the, the soundtrack or just general instructions? How did I come about it? It was brilliant. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm sure uh, Benjamin Wolfish, who did the score, would appreciate that. I'll, I'll text him later. Um, uh, well, with the music, yeah, Ben, um, I wanted him to be really free. Like, a lot of times when you make a film, you put tent music on there. 
temp, you know, temporary music just to sort of say, okay, this is the type of music I want in this scene. But when I showed the film to Ben, I took out all the music. So he just watched it without any music. And he said that was a rare experience. And so he just came into it. I just wanted to let him off the chain and like get his idea of what the music should be, not lead him in any direction. So everything you heard was just um, his ideas. And, and a lot of the first stuff he came up with was the stuff we used in the film. His first instincts, I think the next day after we first met, so we, we meet, we watch the movie, I talk to him for a while about what I'm thinking, the style of music. He leaves, next day I get this email like, I was just messing around last night. And it was like the, uh, the theme at the end of the movie, that piano, it was like that done on a synth, you know, and I was like, you know, we're already there. So, yeah, I guess I wouldn't say hands-on, like, controlling him, because I can't read music like I can, and I can't talk to the, a symphony orchestra in London. You know, that was a great experience, going over to London to see him record the orchestra. It was crazy to be in that room and see all these, like, incredible musicians from, like, the BBC orchestra just belting out this music, um, and it was great. So, um... I, I, I wasn't pushing him in any direction, but I was very happy with the direction he did go in. We had a question just down here, a man in the white shirt. So you said that the studios accepted the idea into you, but I'm interested in the themes and the overall message. Like obviously domestic violence against women is a big issue and gaslighting is a huge issue that you know, a lot of people face. So where did those themes come from to put in this movie? Um, I mean, I started with the character. You know, I, 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 I didn't start by saying, I want to make a film about domestic violence. Or I started with this character, you know, and this, like, well-known legendary character. And then I reverse-engineered it from there. Like, okay, so in what situation is the invisible man most scary? And it's like, it's my favourite part of screenwriting is the part when you're not writing. The worst part of writing is writing. Um, <laughs> but the best part is when, at the start, because I'll just spend weeks being like, yeah, I think I really want the opening scene to be like the thing. I should watch the thing. And then I just sit there and watch movies and pretend it's research. Um, so during that period, I just was filling up notepads with these ideas, and I just—I guess I just settled on the idea that the scariest thing would be getting away from a relationship and thinking that you were free and that you were hidden, and then suddenly feeling like this person was still around. So that was really how I landed on that particular aspect of it. And then once I did, it felt like it felt like the story wanted to go in that direction. You know, it felt right. You know, for this story. We have a question in the middle, just to the right. I'm sorry to make you leg it. Yeah, just in there. Um, uh, I was curious, like, obviously remaking such a, like, a classic character, I was curious if there were any other characters or other old movies or classics that you would, like, consider remaking or you've dreamed of remaking. Yeah, when's the Phantom of the Opera movie leave? <laughs> Soon. Um, um, not really. I mean, I love those characters, you know. Um, I love the lineage of these monster characters, you know, like Maria. Like, um, I remember listening to this podcast. I bet you listen to um, 
you must remember this. It's this great podcast about old Hollywood and and uh, Karina Longworth, who does the podcast, she has this whole series about Boris Karloff. She devotes this whole um, section of her podcast to Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. And so I'm really into that and obsessed with it, but more as a curiosity, less so as a filmmaker dying to do that, you know? Um, um, so I, I haven't really thought about approaching any of the other monsters. But I think I would love to see people kind of modernise it a little bit. Rather than pay tribute to like an old edition of Dracula, I'd like to see a completely contemporary version. Question up the back. Hey mate, uh, first of all, love the movie. It was amazing. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I well, loved about it, and again, like I'm sure I'm not the only one, was the cinematography of it the camera angles going from fast to slow and you just kind of see like where he's there and where he's not and you just kind of think about yourself. What what inspired you for those types of camera angles? Did you watch any footage of other films or did you just take it upon yourself? To shoot the film like that? Yes. Well, I guess, um, you know, a film, as you guys know, it takes a long time. <laughs> For this disposable piece of pop culture, it's a huge monumental effort and it takes a year or more. And So you, for me to commit to making a film, I really have to love it and I have to believe that there's something unique I can say about it. And so with this, I was like, how can I shoot this differently? I've been involved with a lot of horror films and I didn't want to fall back on the old tropes. And so I hit upon the idea of the camera being interested in this person that wasn't in the frame. Like, like the camera was aware that he was there, but the characters weren't. And so I had this idea of like two actors talking and suddenly the camera would just pan away from them. Like it knew something you didn't. And that really got me excited. So that was where it came from. And the cinematography, I mean, stand up Stefan Ducio, cinematographer. Come on, say hi. There he is. That's Stefan. Keep back, ladies, he's taken. Um, um, uh, he, Stefan and I talked a lot about it and just what we wanted to do um, with the film. And, um, and we had a lot of fun kind of figuring out how to break the rules in our own tiny ways. Like most horror films, especially the ones I've been involved in, they're so dark, you're always turning the lights off. It's like, how dark can we get this? We like the whole scene, you know, with like a candle. And with this movie, I wanted to turn the lights on because this is not a monster that needs to hide in the shadows. The whole point of The Invisible Man is he could be standing right there. And, you know, he doesn't need darkness. And so it felt counterintuitive to turn the lights off. So it was just little things like that, you know, that helped make the film feel unique for us. Hopefully that translates to audiences. Yeah, some of the scariest stuff is the empty space, which is like an impossible, it seems like an impossible thing in concept, but in execution, it's really successful. Yeah, I mean, there were moments on set where we were like, hmm. <laughs> There's nothing in the frame. <laughs> we're literally, literally watching paint dry. Um, uh, and um, that was kind of spooky. You get, you, get, you get doubts, you're like, maybe... Maybe we should put something in the frame. <laughs> um, but it was, I just had a feeling that it would work. And I think the audience fills in the blanks. Like, audiences today are so silly literate. You, you know, you guys have seen so many movies that you, you know what's happening. So 
on a subconscious level, if the camera pans over here, you know there's something there, otherwise why would the camera do it? And I knew that, it was like I was relying on you guys, the audience, to fill in that gap for me. Uh, question just in the middle, white shirt. Sorry to just identify you all by clothes, but I can't be like, person. Uh, yeah, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you solved the fight scenes. Uh, like, the kitchen scene, like, she's fighting air. <laughs> you know, um, it was quite difficult. <laughs> um, it was tough. I mean, we used we used a motion control camera, which is like a robot camera. So it's, it's um, built on this arm, and it's a robot, and the camera just moves at certain times. It's all set to a specific timing. And so unlike if you have a human camera operator and, the, and an actor is supposed to go over to the window, but they decide in the moment, because they're actors and they're crazy, that they don't want to go to the window, the human camera operator can adjust. But a robot just goes where it's told. It's all pre-programmed. So it's almost like a dance. It's like more like dance choreography. Like the actor has to be right there at this beat. And you've got this voice that counts out the timing out loud. So when you're shooting a scene with a motion control camera, all you can hear across the set is this disembodied voice saying, and one, and two, and three. <laughs> and the actor knows that she has, at five, she has to be here. And then at seven, she has to be there. So it's quite difficult. You know, it was a, but the, you, you hope that the end result will be worth it. Anything that's good in films is usually incredibly difficult. I can't imagine the guys who shot The Revenant were like, this is so fun. <laughs> that bear was yeah. really hard like, on set, I heard. Yeah, you know, they're killing themselves in the freezing cold. For what? For a movie. But because they killed themselves, you get this great movie that people watch on their phones. Um, <laughs> Rose, Did I just say that or think it? <laughs> Rose pink coloured hair in the middle. Nice glasses. <laughs> you better stop. I don't want you to be like, um, bad pants. <laughs> Mismatching shirt. Zodiac killer, back row. Yeah. Uh, hi, Lee. Um, I just hi. wanted to ask. I noticed watching the movie that there were quite a few familiar Australian faces showing up. Uh, Benedict Hardy from Upgrade, and I was especially surprised to see Nicholas Hope show up as one of the doctors very briefly. Uh, it's always a delight to see him. I was just wondering, the use of Australian actors was that just because it was filmed in Australia, or was there a concerted effort to represent Australia? Well, I, I mean, primarily because it was shot in Australia. Like, this is what... It's, it's an Australian film. It's all Australian crew, you know. Um, it's set in the US, but it felt very much like an Australian film. It's all shot here, and every member of the crew was Australian. And we imported three American actors who were all amazing, you know, uh, Storm Reid and Aldous Hodge and, and Elizabeth. Um, but everyone else was Australian, and there's such a great talent pool. One of the great things about shooting films in Australia is the talent. Like, you know, as an Australian, I can utilise these incentives and, and can take advantage of pushing the budget as far as it can go. And, but it's not just an economical reason to shoot here. The, the, the crew talent here is incredible. You know, you get this high level of skill that you don't get. I mean, a lot of movies, to save money, they'll shoot in a country where they're going to save money. I've heard stories from friends of mine where they've shot their horror movie in, like, Bulgaria. And the problem there is that the boom operator is like, I have one question. What is boom? It's like, it's that thing you're holding. The stick. I was like, yes. Like, you, don't, you know what I mean? I can't wait till some Bulgarian guy hears about that. Um, 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 it's, but in Australia, you get this A-grade 
pro-athlete talent of just people and you know you feel like you're getting champagne for a beer budget and it's just and, and, and I just love you know I just love working with Australians so I think it was a bit of both I mean we were shooting here but also I want those people I want Australian actors you know they're, they're just great everyone knows it's, it's just no bullshit come in do your job it's great got time for two more questions so this guy just in the middle and then we'll grab you down the front <laughs> Uh, Haley, um, hello. Uh, um, first off, I just want to say thank you. You're not going to know why, but a couple of years ago, you met me at Comic Con, and I asked for some advice in in Melbourne. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, you gave me some advice, and from there on, you've been an inspiration. So thank you. Uh, oh, cool. But here's my question. Keep going. <laughs> Why aren't you shooting? I think you sense that I would be mad if there was like a heartwarming anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> but my question is, this movie seems a bit like futuristic technology-wise, same as Upgrade. Would there be a possibility if The Invisible Man and Upgrade were in like a connected universe? <laughs> well, the name of the comp Adrian's company was Cobalt, which was <laughs> just the name of the company from Upgrade. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, um, maybe. Um, I always like to put... Who saw the little saw Easter egg? Yeah. Mm. Half the audience. You know, see the Jigsaw, graffiti? Gotta, I, I got to stick that in every film. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, it's funny. There's such a... There's such a, 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 a desire right now, in, in Hollywood at least, to make universe movies. It's not good enough to make a, a franchise anymore and make sequels. Now you have to make a whole universe. And... Uh, and so, I'm still a fan of the standalone movie. You know, I don't want to have to... I don't want movies uh, to become TV in the sense that you're like, stay tuned till next week. Like, oh, now I've got to wait three years to find out what happened to Black Widow. Do you know what I mean? Like, we waited ten years, but yes. Yeah, ten years. Like, I love... What's great to me about stories is beginning, middle, end. Like, the lights go down, you're introduced to these people, you go on a journey with them, and then... If it works, there's a satisfying ending, right? That, to me, is really what I love, is contained stories, just as a storyteller. I, I hate, personally, for my own films, I hate leaving, what do they call it when you leave an ending? Like a cliffhanger ending, like, you know, I just, I want to end the film definitively, and a lot of the movies I love have great endings. It's the most important part... The most important part of any screenplay is the first 10 pages. The most important part of a movie is the last 10 minutes. And so movies I love, like Seven, you know... Um, What's the, in the box? The Sixth Sense, Memento, these movies, they have great endings that, like, floor you. Like, you just sit in the theatre after the credits are finished because you're just stunned. And So that's what I aspire to do, yeah. Uh, just a question down here in the second row. And this is the final question. I could probably yell if that helps, or... Oh. I'm having trouble hearing you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, look, absolutely amazing, as everyone said. Um, I, I, my question was sort of related to the previous one. I remember last year, Jason Bloom posted on Twitter that he had had thoughts about a, he had thoughts about a sequel to Upgrade. Um, and Upgrade itself had a very definitive ending, which implied that if there was such a sequel, it would probably be a little different to the first one. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you had any plans for the sequel, if that was ever going to happen, or what the deal would be. And can you call it upgrades, like <laughs> alien, alien style, you know? 
Wouldn't upgraded be better? I guess, <laughs> but you had the legacy of the S on the end, you know? Plural. We'll talk after. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I don't know. No, really. Not, not any plans at the moment for a sequel. Like, um, um, I've been so busy making this, but, um, you know, Jason, he's kind of excitable. <laughs> he, he, he's the guy who will come to you and be like, what's happening with Upgrade? Are we doing anything with Upgrade? And, and I'll say no. And then he'll say, okay. And, uh, and, <laughs> and so I think I've been distracted, but I really had a lot of fun making Upgrade and I feel like if I had a bit more money and resources, I could really uh, take advantage of this whole like fight scene choreography mm. we did and do like the fight scene on crack version of <coughs> Upgrade. Um, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, people. It's had. A, it's been a slow burn upgrade. Like it wasn't like it made a huge splash when it opened, but it slowly built a following, and you get a lot of people talking to me about it. And I'm surprised by the number of people who who, who like it. So sorry to the people whose questions that we couldn't get to. Uh, Lee's on Twitter. Feel free to tweet him incessantly. Anytime. Busy, right? No. Okay. Great. Please put your hands together and. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.